In my younger years, and I know you're looking at me thinking, Chad, you're young. I know. Before I was married and had children and had all the time in the world on my hands, I loved to river raft. I loved whitewater. I would be out on the rivers as often as I could because I lived in Montana. And uh, that state was pretty much my playground. Now, something many of you might not know about whitewater rafting is you don't just shoot the rapids on the go if they're really big water. What you do is you pull your boat off to the side, you walk along the trail in order to get a good picture of the rapid that you're going to shoot, and you study it. You look at the water, you see if there's any rocks, you see if there's any holes, if there's any eddy fences, see if there's any trees, and you map out by way of sight, how you're going to shoot that rapid. And there's really only two ends to your rapid run. Either successful, you're still in the boat, you're secure, you got a big old smile on your face, or you're out of the boat, holding on for dear life, hoping that you can just make it through to the other side. Well, about 15 years ago, I drew a permit by way of lottery to raft the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon on about a three-week trip. Oh, it was just a dream come true. The only problem is I was kind of like the kid you see in the buffet line who keeps scooping food onto his plate knowing that mom and dad knowing that he'll never eat it. Well, my eyes were a little bigger than my stomach in wanting to go down the Colorado through the Grand Canyon because it far outstripped my skill set. I was not an experienced enough oarsman or gifted enough oarsman in order to navigate that river all by myself. So fast forward a few months, we're on the river, and thankfully the Lord had allowed me to assemble an experienced team of oarsmen to go with me. One of them in particular, his name was Mike, and he had already been on the Colorado three different times. He was very experienced very skilled and very willing to teach someone like me how to navigate these rapids. Now, the largest rapid on the Colorado in the Grand Canyon is actually the very last rapid. So at the end of approximately three weeks, it's day 18, we're feeling pretty good about ourselves. We've hit all these rapids. And then you hear this roar, and you know that's Lava Falls, the last rapid on the trip. Lava Falls is a monster. It's a behemoth of a rapid that you have to nail. Or not only will you flip your boat, but there's a good chance you could get injured. So we uh, pulled up beside Lava Falls, just like we'd done for all the other big rapids. We get out of our boat. We walk along the trail to get a bird's eye view of this monster rapid. And Mike whom by this point in time had demonstrated he is trustworthy. It is wise to listen to Mike's influence. He's gotten us safely through thus far. So Mike starts to point out all the features to Lava Falls we need to be aware of. There's a hidden rock here. Avoid that. There's a sinkhole there in the sense that it'll pull your boat underneath. It won't flush you out. Uh, and there's an eddy fence here. Watch out or your boat could flip. He said what you want to do is you want to run straight down the middle. And I know that's counterintuitive, but that's what you want to do. And he even drew it in the sand for us. 
And while we're huddled around uh, Mike's drawing here on the sand talking about how to navigate Lava Falls, there's another group with another guide, and he's listening and watching. And this guide walks up to Mike and our group and flat out says, don't listen to this man. The advice he just gave you, his instructions are wrong. Instead, what you want to do is this. And he proceeded to draw in the sand and appeared to be equally knowledgeable, experienced, how to approach the rapid. He said, you want to go on the right side of the river. That's the way forward. And we just all looked at each other in disbelief. Is this really happening? The biggest rapid on the trip, and we've got competing voices. Who do we choose to influence our decision? Life, our lives are very similar in many ways to this river trip experience. It comes at you fast. We have to make lots of decisions. Those decisions have consequences and we have competing voices. There's a myriad of influences available for us to give our ear to. And depending on who we listen to impacts our choices and our lives. So this morning, we are going to dig into Psalm 1. And what we are going to talk about is the impact of two polar opposite influences on our lives. That of the ungodly and that of the word of God. And the psalmist here really boils down the influences from which we can choose to two. The ungodly and the word of God. And what we're going to do is contrast these two throughout this psalm in order to understand not only the source of the influence, but the impact of the influence. And look at the end of an individual who follows one path versus the other. And so in Psalm 1, we're going to break it down two verses at a time. In verses 1 through 2, we're going we're to look at these two sources. And then verses 3 through 4, we're going to contrast the results if you follow one or the other, and then in verses 5 through 6, the end or the outcome. If you get in the boat and you follow this man or this man, we're going to see what happens. Okay, so read with me verses 1 through 2 in Psalm 1 as we start with our first point, contrasting influence of the ungodly and the word of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the two sources. In verse 1, the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers are all the same type of person. They're the ungodly. Those who reject God, reject his Christ, and do not live according to God's ways. They are proud and arrogant. They come across very confident and knowledgeable, and perhaps they are knowledgeable in some sense. Uh, in all uh, senses of the word, they are practical atheists. They might claim to believe in God, but they do not believe in the God of the Bible, nor live according to his ways. Uh, but their reasoning appears to be reasonable. So this psalm here is what's called wisdom literature, because we need wisdom from above 
Because if we rely on our own senses, we can make wrong conclusions based on our faulty reasoning skills. So this is wisdom literature, and it's designed to instruct the believer how to live skillfully, how to live in accord with God's ways, to live what's called a blessed life. Now, some scholars believe that the original audience that the psalmist had in mind while writing Psalm 1 was the king of Israel. Why? Well, the king of Israel was instructed in Deuteronomy 17 to write out for himself a copy of the Pentateuch, the first five books, and to obey it. And if he did, and as he did, so too the people would obey, and God would bless them according to the Mosaic Covenant. So Psalm 1 is an admonishment to the king to regularly read and obey the word in order to be blessed by God. Notice that the very first word in this psalm is... Blessed. Blessed. Now the word blessed used here as well in other sections of wisdom literature describes a person who is satisfied, even happy. The Christian Standard Bible in their translation of the Hebrew actually writes out how happy is the one who dot dot dot. So why is the believer happy or blessed or satisfied with their life in accord with God's ways? Well, the first is it's a result of avoiding the ungodly influence. This is what the psalmist is telling us here. You avoid the counsel of the wicked, verse 1. And what that means is you're not thinking like them. You're protecting your mind. Uh, Also, you avoid the way of sinners, You're not behaving like them. Your life looks different because it is. Uh, And you also are avoiding the seed of scoffers here in verse 1. That means you're not engaging closely with them or dealing with them. And in doing this, you're avoiding their influence. So that's the first aspect of living this type of life is you're avoiding this type of person's counsel. And the second reason they're happy, according to the psalm here, is their delight. Verse 2, their delight is in the law of the Lord. This means they're finding pleasure in learning the wisdom of God. And they're also, verse 2, meditating on it day and night. Now, the picture here of meditating on the law, or for us New Testament believers, the whole council, uh, the entire Bible, the picture here is of one just pouring over the Bible almost mumbling to themselves, trying to understand it, for it to seep in to their lives and be changed by it so that they might faithfully obey it and walk this course. Now, summer is technically over in my world. Kids are back in school. It's still hot. One of the trips we take every summer is we go to the beach. Uh, This past summer, I went with my family, an extended family, and there were about 30 of us. Now, some might argue that doesn't sound like a good time, and there were points along the way where it was not much fun. But all of us were together, all 30 of us. And what I observed is that each of us enjoys different aspects of the beach. Some of us love the sand, we're making sandcastles. Others of us love the waves, and we're out boogie boarding. Some other people like the pool. They're up there by themselves, content as can be, reading their book. 
But then there's others who like the sun. And what they do is they lay out. Now, they might tell you it's because it feels good or it's relaxing, but why are they really laying out? They want to get a tan, don't they? And so they're laying out, exposing themselves to the sun in order to be changed by it. That's what the psalmist is painting for us here. To delight in the law of the Lord, to meditate on it day and night, is to read it in such a way that you are exposing your very heart to it, your mind to it, to be changed by it. It's much more than just understanding it. It's opening it in such a way that the light of the word, the truth, changes you so that you might walk in step with God, experience his faithful hand upon your life. Know him in an intimate manner. So this first point is simply there's two sources of influence available to us, the believer. And they have different results, which we've touched on ever so slightly here. But this moves us into our second point. Exactly in what way are believers who walk in accord with God's word happy? And with that question, we're going to contrast the results, the two paths. What are the results? We've seen one result. If you walk in accord with God's word is blessed or happy or satisfied. What does that mean exactly? Well, read with me verses 3 through 4 as we dig a little deeper into this. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So we see here the psalmist contrasting by way of metaphor The results of these two paths. One is a living, flourishing, vibrant fruit tree. The other is its polar opposite. It's dead. It's an empty hole. It's chaff blowing away in the wind. In verse 4 here, the quality of life of the ungodly, the quality of life of the ungodly, those who reject God, his Christ, and his ways, is likened to Chaff. Now, chaff is the worthless shell that encases grain. When we lived in Ethiopia, we witnessed very frequently this winnowing process. Uh, Most of Ethiopia is farmers, farmland, so you can't drive down the road very far without seeing farmers farming. What they would do is they would break the chaff on the teff grain, they'd make huge piles of it on the ground. They would get a shovel or some sort of fork, scoop up a big pile of the teff, throw it up in the air, and then the wind would separate the grain from the chaff, and the wind would blow the chaff away. Now, what I most remember in seeing this over and over again is the air filled with chaff, endlessly and aimlessly blowing as the wind directs it. It's etched in my mind. And the point the psalmist is making here is the quality of life for the ungodly is empty and hollow. 
The quality of life for the ungodly is empty and hollow. So why are we tempted to follow what we are told here is an empty and hollow way of life? Well, if we look out into the world, what do we see? We see people who've totally dismissed God and are living a life according to their own sinful ways and they seem content. They have all the money they could ask for. They get to take elaborate uh, vacations. Uh, they've got large houses. They seem happy. But what I can attest to, and I'm sure you can as well, that no amount of money or clothes or nice furnishings or new cars satisfies the longing of our hearts. Our hearts are also endlessly and aimlessly craving more and more. And until God is on the throne of our heart, we will feel empty and hollow. Look at verse 3 here. This is the quality of life for the godly. Those who know God are influenced by his word. It's compared to what? It's compared to a living, flourishing, and vibrant fruit tree. This picture is of the happy, satisfied, blessed life from verses 1 and 2. The fruit in verse 3 here, as well as the leaf that does not wither in verse 3, this is a simile for the flourishing life or the life of prosperity. Now, for the New Testament believer, this is not, this is not a flourishing or a prosperity of abundant material riches. So what does a flourishing life for the New Testament believer in Psalm 1 look like? Well, look again at verse 3. This tree that's planted by streams of water. This is key for us. This means believers who follow the instruction of the Lord, who live their lives in step with God and accord to His Word, are guaranteed His provision. He will meet your needs. Water here is the stuff of life. And as you walk in accord with the Creator, the Creator, the source of all life, provides that which you need to live. So, let me share with you a little small part of my testimony. Now, at this point in my life, I do believe I was a believer, but I was attempting to meet my own needs apart from my maker, apart from my redeemer. I lived in Montana at the time, and I made the assumption against the counsel of God's word that surely I can find the satisfaction in life. I can meet that need of meaning in life, not by walking with the creator, but through his creation. Through outdoor adventure, whether it was whitewater rafting, uh, mountain biking, rock climbing, you name it, I went for it full steam ahead. And I wasn't the only one. I was surrounded by others who had the same approach to life. And I can honestly admit to you, their influence impacted my course in life, the direction I chose, following their lead. Well, God in his mercy allowed me to take this path. Okay, Chad, go down this path. Learn for yourself that my word is true. So I did, 
And it didn't take but a few years for me to realize that no matter how glamorous my life appeared on the surface, whether via Facebook or Instagram, no matter how incredible the stories that I could share about my experiences on the inside, I did. I felt hollow and empty, just like chaff, endlessly and aimlessly blowing in the wind. But God in his great grace, when I returned to him, saying, God, you're right. I want to walk with you. He brought me to a very, very far away place, free from ungodly influence. He sent me all the way up to the coldest place in the whole world, to Glen Allen, Alaska. And I'll never forget my first semester enrolled at Alaska Bible College. It was January. I was living in a mobile home, freezing. Three inches of ice coated our windows. I had a couple different robes on, a couple different sweatpants on, just trying to stay warm. Had no access to the outdoors whatsoever. All I had was my Bible and my homework that my professors had given me uh, for that night. And I'll never forget sitting there contrasting the life I had in Montana with the life I'm living now and feeling content. My soul felt a measure of contentment that it had not felt in a long time. And it wasn't because I was doing anything fun. It was because I was delighting myself in the Word of God, opening myself up to its rays, so to speak, to change me, transform me, and then willingly going out and walking in step with God's Word and experiencing happiness. Again, that doesn't mean problem-free. It doesn't mean the brokenness of our minds or our hearts is removed. But a measure of contentment, of satisfaction with my maker, I experienced in that moment. So maybe this morning there are some of you who are believers, but are walking a path in discord with God's ways and his word. The grace and the mercy are always there to return to him to the source of water, as this metaphor has shown us, the source of life and experience his hand upon you in a way that makes you feel blessed. So what we've seen here is the psalmist does not only show us the contrasting results, but in in verses 5 and 6, which we're going to dive into, there's a contrasting outcome or outright end to these two paths. Read with me verses 5 and 6 as we move to our final point here, the contrasting end for the ungodly and the godly life. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So for the ungodly... Again, that's those who reject God, His Christ, and live out their sinful lives. They can expect certain judgment. In verse 5, this phrase here, will not stand, means the ungodly are incapable of escaping divine judgment. They don't have the ability to do anything but be judged. Uh, The certainty of the judgment is made clear with the article the in verse 5, the judgment. Now, the Hebrew is such that it makes it so that it's definitive. Again, they will not escape. They will not endure. But what is this judgment? Well, it's both temporal and historical in the sense that as this was written for the nation of Israel, these ungodly would be judged 
according to the covenant. They would be removed. And we see this uh, throughout the Old Testament. But it also has the idea of final eternal judgment for the unbeliever. How does one escape such judgment? Well, if you are an unbeliever, the only way of escape is in God's Christ. It's trusting in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you do that, God forgives you. Why? Because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. He took our punishment, God's wrath. So that when you trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins, God declares you righteous. And what we've seen here throughout this psalm is the contrast between the wicked and the righteous. So it's the righteous who escape this eternal judgment. And verse 6 makes that clear. Verse 6 again says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That God knows here is more than just observing. God knows everything. This know here is very personal. It's relational. And it has this idea of God guarding over the entire course of the life of the believer. This course which the righteous are all placed on is something that God is present upon. Guarding over your life. He's got you in his hand. He will securely deliver you into the final form of the kingdom when his son returns. All because of your faith in Christ. So these contra contrasting final verses are designed to cause us to pause and wonder, why would I choose any other path? If this is the path of my eternal destiny, and yes, I as a believer am secure for heaven, but as a believer, I can also make these poor decisions and walk in discord with God. I can experience his discipline. I know that the results of this path are compared to chaff, empty, hollow, worthless. Why? Why would I choose any other path, especially a path in which these people will perish? Isn't it so much better to choose to be influenced by the word of God? For that to be our marching orders. Now, if you recall, I didn't finish my opening illustration. Do you remember where we were? We were on the side of Lava Falls. And it is loud. Lots and lots of water. And we are there and Mike had just drawn for us his path. And this other guide had drawn for us his path. Which do we choose? Well, Mike said, just hold on. You guys just stay here. And he and this other guide went down and they each ran their own course one at a time. And this other guide went first. He took the far right path like he instructed us to do so. His boat flipped immediately. He was tumped out scrambling, trying to grab onto the rope on the side of his raft just to pull himself to safety, to no avail. He had to ride down the whole rapid, flushed out. Then Mike went straight down the middle, just like he told us to, and he nailed it. 
No problem whatsoever. He got to the other side, happy, secure. So what do you think we did? We followed right on his tail. And we all got through happy, secure. Friends, our great God has given us his sure instructions. Not only in Psalm 1, not only in the wisdom literature, but in his entire word. And he invites us to follow his counsel. To allow his word to be the primary influence in our lives. Again, it doesn't mean your life will be problem free. It doesn't take away the brokenness of your body. It doesn't bring abundant material blessing. But you are blessed on this path. You experience the security of God's provision. And that's enough. And in walking in step with him, you will be blessed. And your life will demonstrate that no matter how unglamorous it looks. Your heart will be a testimony to the reality of the truthfulness of God's word. So my charge to you this morning is don't mimic the world. Meditate on the word. Don't mimic the world. No matter how reasonable it sounds or confident or glamorous, or secure, don't mimic the world. Meditate on God's Word. And I invite you to memorize verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Just start there. And then as you're able, memorize more. Store God's Word in your heart so that wherever you go, His influence is with you. And this isn't an invitation from me, Pastor. This is an invitation from God. He's inviting us to choose this path, a path of blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your certainty, your truthfulness, your presence with us, that those of us who have trusted in Christ can walk intimately with you, experiencing your goodness, your provision for our lives. I pray that you would give us wisdom to choose for your word to be the influence upon our lives. Bless us, our great God. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.